0: Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Until the mid-1990s, the harvesting of redwood trees was the industry that dominated the economy of the north coast of California. In the mid-1990s, due to circumstances involving the Pacific Lumber Company and Charles Hurwitz of Texas, industry advocates and environmentalists clashed over the need for and the extent of the redwood Tree Harvest. At that time, few environmentalists carried as much name recognition and power as did Judy Berry. In this program, originally recorded in March of 1995 at the heart of the conflict, Judy Berry and I discussed the position of Earth First in relationship to the logging rules. Judy, welcome to Radio Curious.
1: Thank you for having me, Barry.
0: I'm glad you're here, and I'm sorry that we weren't going to have a uh, lively discussion between you and John Campbell. I think that it would be uh, an interesting talk, but let's get to the issues. Uh, John Campbell confirmed yesterday that uh, the position of Pacific Lumber is that they own the trees, and they should be able to sell them if they want because they're theirs. You want to buy them? We'll sell them to you. And your response is?
1: Uh, well, actually, there's several responses to that. First of all, the issue of should this be cut at all. And Charles Hurwitz's claim for ownership, which is, I'll I'll talk about that in a little while, how dubious that is, how he obtained these trees in the first place. Um, but all of that aside, the issue isn't should we cut old growth. The issue isn't should we cut a wilderness area. The issue, the 96% of the old growth has already been cut. The issue is, should we cut the last 4%? And the answer is absolutely no. The trees in Headwaters' forests are 1,000, 1,500, some even 2,000 years old. And if you think of the scale of that, to Charles Hurwitz's very dubious claim of ownership, um, if you think of the importance, the biological importance of this last island, of intact redwood wilderness, compared to the claim of this greedy billionaire, uh, it, it absolutely pales by comparison. So um, biologically, the Headwaters is one of three remaining merlet habitat areas, uh, an area that's intact enough to still exhibit enough characteristics of a redwood wilderness to be able to support merlet. Uh, it's one of three merlet areas on the whole California coast, which used to, the merlot used to range completely up and down the coast the whole way. So we're talking about a last remnant of something that's, already, that's almost gone. And I, I think the private property rights claim absolutely pales in, com- in comparison to that.
0: Well, let's put this into perspective as to what was here of this kind of uh, forest two or three hundred years ago.
1: Well, one hundred and forty years ago, there were two million acres of old-growth forest. In fact, Mendocino County was the heart of this ecosystem, and we certainly know what's left here, which is nearly nothing. Um, of all of that two million acres, um, what one half of it has been paved over, farmed over, converted to, uh, to other uses, never to grow redwoods again. Much of the rest of it is these devastated stump lands like are owned by LP and GP, and, and often a lot of it by Maxam now too, now that they've increased their cutting policies. So this is a precious remnant. There's very little like this left anywhere. And, you know, these are these biological islands, these are the Noah's arcs of the future. This is where the genetic code is carried. This is where the ecosystem, the way that it interacts and works. We've only been doing this for 140 years, cutting these trees down. And this ecosystem dates back to the days of the dinosaurs. And I think we have an op- absolute obligation to save everything that's left, especially something of the nature of headwaters forests.
0: You... Um Talk about a dubious claim on the part of um, Maxam and Pacific Lumber. Um, Why do you characterize it that way?
1: Well, you know, what he did, this is this corporate raider from Texas, and he actually obtained this land through fraud and influence peddling. And he worked with Michael Milken, who was convicted of crimes very similar to those that Charles Hurwitz got away with. So the way that he did this is... um, First of all, Maxam is not a lumber company, it's a, it's a holding company, it's a corporate rating company that takes over other companies. So uh, what Maxam did in the 1980s was they had a savings and loan in Texas, which they crashed in the savings and loan scandal. And the way that they crashed the savings and loan was that they invested all these people's money, these you know people, just innocent property owners who used this bank, they invested the public's money in Michael Milken's junk bonds. And when Michael Milken's junk bonds fell through, uh, Michael Milken went to jail, and the the savings and loan collapsed. And it collapsed to the tune of $1.6 billion. We, the taxpayers, bailed Charles Hurwitz out for that. There's something called Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and that is a public agency that guarantees banks so that we won't have another bank failure like in the Depression. So when this S&L failed, the public had to come in And bail them out. Um, And in addition to that, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation right now claims, in addition to the $1.6 billion buyout, which they're just letting him get away with scot free, yet they have an outstanding claim against Charles Hurwitz for $540 million at the federal deposit insurance corporation which is they claim his share relating from his fraud in the um in the collapse of the snl so there's already a public claim of 540 million dollars against this man and yet he's demanding 500 million dollars for headwaters forest um so in that way so the snl scam in itself again i guess i need to say why this relates to Maxam, because this is not a separate business deal um after this Savings alone had crashed. Charles Hurwitz then set his sights on Pacific Lumber Company, which is a locally owned company that had practiced somewhat sustainable logging and therefore owned the best of what was left in the world and in the Redwoods. So um when Charles Hurwitz took over Pacific Lumber, it was in what's called a leveraged buyout or a junk bond buyout. And now is where he called back his favor from Michael Milken. So these two deals are very closely related. Um, In in response for him buying Michael Milken's junk bonds, now Michael Milken bought his junk bonds to take over Pacific Lumber. So this is a direct involvement. Also, Ivan Boesky, Drexel Bernan and a who's who of corporate criminals did this deal. The, um, The price, the selling price of Pacific Lumber was $900 million when he took it over, undervalued, but that was what the price is. He put up only 150 million dollars of that and the other 750 million was financed through Michael Milken and Ivan Bosky's junk bonds. So he took over this company with a huge debt. And the the, idea, the company
0: that he took over is uh, Pacific Lumber. That's right. Okay.
1: And, but uh, it, and I don't idea,
0: want I don't want to lose the theme here.
1: Okay, I'm sorry. He took over Pacific Lumber carrying this huge debt of $750 million. Now, the idea of a junk bond buyout is that you buy a company that you don't really have the money to buy it, but you're going to get the money by liquidating the assets of that company that you're taking over. And so this is a very dubious scheme to start with. Well, um, the assets of this company happen to be the last of the old-growth Redwoods. So when Charles Hurwitz came in, he certainly took it over, and he began liquidating the assets. Not only did he nearly triple the cut of old-growth redwood and institute clear-cutting and other non-sustainable methods, he also sold off the welding division, the office building. He, um, he liquidated the pension fund, and in seven or eight years' time, he took out of Pacific Lumber approximately $900 million worth of value between the trees that he cut and the parts of the company that he sold out. Off. So that's the whole price of the company. But so now you would have thought he could have paid back his junk bonds and things would be over. But Charles Hurwitz didn't use that money that he took out of Pacific Lumber to pay the junk bonds. Instead, he used it to buy Kaiser Aluminum. So when the junk bonds became due about a year ago, he still hadn't paid them. He still owed over 500 and over 500 million on the 750 million dollar debt. So what he did at that point was the slimiest piece of this at all. Instead of paying this debt, he refinanced the company, Pacific Lumber, by splitting it into three separate companies, Scotia Pacific, Pacific Lumber, and then a new one called Salmon Creek Company. And he divided the debt among the three companies. Well, Scotia Pacific consists of the vast majority of the cutover land. That got the most debt. Pacific Lumber consists of the mill, the town, and all of the old growth except for Headwaters Forest. That got the rest of the debt, and Headwaters Forest, which he calls Salmon Creek Company, he left absolutely zero debt on. So Charles Hurwitz owns the deed to Headwaters Forest outright with no debt on it, and if he sells this land, he's going to pocket the money, he's not going to put any of it towards his massive debt, and um, he obtained this without paying a penny and through an absolute financial shell game of fraud so I think it is the ultimate chutzpah for this man to come in and ask for public money, holding these ancient trees hostage, demanding public money, this Texas corporate raider, to come into California and hold the trees hostage and demand California public money or California public lands in trade for not cutting a forest that he obtained by fraud in the first place. So I think that the discussions with him and Pete Wilson are very outrageous. Pete Wilson could stop the cutting in headwaters just by enforcing the existing forestry laws. That they're even thinking of giving this criminal our public money and our public land for land that he stole is really an outrage.
0: Well, the the cutting that we're talking about, uh, that's uh, of dead and dying trees. Is that right?
1: well so they say right.
0: Um, right and and what does it, it take makes this to do even that more
1: ridiculous um, the cutting of headwater's forest he didn't even file a timber harvest plan had they filed a timber harvest plan we would have had some reasonable amount of notice of this cutting as it is we've had to mobilize so quickly that it's been quite amazing we've had about one week notice of this
0: well let's uh, back up for a minute uh, in terms of the uh, dead and dying um, cut that they're supposed to be marking tomorrow out on the ground Uh, According to the uh, plan, according to the law, what does that allow for? And because my next question is going to be what do you anticipate, and maybe we'll talk soon to find out what in fact happened. Okay. What does that allow for?
1: Okay, well, this exemption, um, this exemption process, what it does is exempt you from from having to file a timber harvest plan, and it exempts you from following most environmental laws. And this this loophole in the Forest Practices Act was actually put into effect to deal with the effects of beetle infestations and forest fires, neither of which affect old-growth redwood. So, and it's called salvage logging. And the application of a term like salvage logging to an old-growth wilderness is, is really just bold faced fraud. Um, and the fact that the California Department of Forestry approved it just shows how they're just under timber industry's thumb, because this is a fraud to use this. What it allows is, it allows them to cut up to 10 percent of the quote-unquote, well, up to 10 percent of the standing trees, of all the standing trees,
0: regardless of dying, whether they're they are
1: um, dead or dying. Well, and regard,
0: Judy, regardless of whether they're dead or dying?
1: Well, first of all, any old tree can be described as dead or dying. I mean, these trees, and dead and dying trees, quote-unquote, are an essential part of an old-growth ecosystem. So I mean, you know, this the ferns on the ground in this place are six feet tall. There are, you know, the the ground is a spongy loam, untouched. Um, they're also allowed to take out as much down trees, already down trees, as they want, even removing already down trees would desecrate this area. It would upset the balance of this last precious piece of this ecosystem. It took thousands and thousands of years for the soil to develop, you know, for these trees to develop, for this interacting ecosystem. And to go in under the guise of salvage to remove dead and dying trees, supposedly to improve the health of of a stand, this is just so flagrant. It's such an in-your-face abuse of the law that it's incredible that they're getting away with this.
0: Judy, I want to take a moment and tell our listeners that uh, you're listening to Radio Curious. My guest this week is Judy Berry from Earth First, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, we had planned to have John Campbell, the president of Pacific Lumber, be part of this uh, discussion, but he canceled uh, just a few minutes before we were to record.
1: And, and good good for him that he did, I'm sure. I mean, he certainly doesn't have a leg to stand on. I think he's a wimp for not coming on, but I can see why he didn't, because how can he possibly explain what he's doing? There is no excuse for it, except unmitigated greed and criminality.
0: Um, Judy, tomorrow the there's supposed to be a marking out uh, at the Headwaters Forest of the trees that are going to be taken. And I understand you will be nearby, Uh, what is what do you plan what's anticipated well
1: there's two things that are going to go on tomorrow there is a public rally which is at the log gate um, near Carlotta on Fisher Road which is off highway 36 and this public rally is an expression of community outrage that they would dare to do this and uh, it's for everybody it's for children and you know old people and families and anybody who wants to come it's a legal rally to express our outrage Um, But in addition to that, there will also be people in the woods attempting to physically block them. Um, It's not just that there's a marking of the trees. Actually, it's worse than that. The trees have already been marked. What's happening tomorrow is the California Department of Forestry is going in and doing a final inspection. And as soon as that inspection is done, they can start cutting. So um, there will be... People are prepared to throw themselves in front of the chainsaws, as they have before in this area. People are prepared to block their entrance in any way possible. So in the woods there will be direct action in attempt to, to block it, nonviolent direct action, but non attempt to block their entrance. And then at the gate there will be a, it looks like a very large rally expressing public outrage. Um, at the rally there will be speakers from the the various groups that have been working to save this forest. There'll be music, uh, things like that. And at the end of the rally, John Campbell has said that only 50 or 60 people care about Headwaters Forest, that we just make a lot of noise. At the end of the rally, we are going to caravan to Scotia and present John Campbell with 12,000 signatures of people who are demanding a moratorium on the cutting in Headwaters
0: Forest. How long do you anticipate it may take? Uh, to do this so-called salvage cutting within the Headwaters Forest?
1: Well, um, I I don't know how long it will take. All they need to do is go in. You know, the ground is very saturated now, and they can't really bring in their heavy equipment. Uh, All they have to do is go in and start dropping trees. And, you know, even if Charles Hurwitz's ultimate intent is to sell Headwaters Forest, which I certainly think it is, or he wouldn't have separated it off into a separate company with no debt on it, um, even if his ultimate I- intent is to sell it, he's certainly not above dropping trees to create a panic and force a sale. So we intend to stop that. We have no idea how long. There's a four-day window from March 28th, which is Tuesday, until the, the uh, Maxam has agreed to a voluntary moratorium. It has no weight of law, and this company doesn't care about anything. But a voluntary moratorium from, moratorium from April 1st until September 30th so that the merlet can complete their nesting season before he slaughters their habitat, so uh we're presuming that there's a four day unprotected period, and people are prepared to be up there the whole time um epic by the way though is uh is tell right, tell us what right e- now uh, trying to judy get order
0: Judy, tell us what epic is and and back up there for a minute, because okay. I think we we're both talking at the same time
1: all right, epic is the environmental protection information center. And uh, Epic has been filing lawsuits trying to stop uh, MaxAM's um, cutting in, in various parts of the old growth for years and years and years. They've won eight lawsuits against MaxAM on the issues of cutting old growth, including a very strong decision that they just got a week before they announced this headwaters grove. They just won a very strong decision in federal court stopping logging in Owl Creek, which is the second largest grove. And uh, so EPIC has a long history of suing and winning against Max EPIC is co-sponsoring this demonstration. This demonstration, by the way, is not just sponsored by Earth First. It's sponsored by Earth First, EPIC, Student Environmental Action Coalition from up at Humboldt State, and by many individuals in the community who are not affiliated with any group. This is a community mobilization, and it's actually been very impressive how passionately people feel about this and how quick people are mobilizing to come in and defend these trees.
0: Judy, um, I know you have something to say about the marbled uh, Murlet decision uh, from the Ninth Circuit recently and how that fits into all of this.
1: Uh, well, yeah, and that's what I just referred to. That's the um, epic lawsuit um, that was just won in federal court about the marble merlet and what they ruled in this decision. And so I think that besides everything else, you know, add to everything else about this, how horrible it is what they're doing, this is a spite cut that as soon, when they won this ruling, this was like two weeks ago, what the federal court said was that um, that they they said that Pacific Lumber had not only did they have inadequate murrelet studies, but they said that their studies, they ruled, the federal court ruled that their studies were absolutely and deliberately fraudulent. Um, that what they did was they deliberately, they'd drive the murrelets away with heavy equipment noise, and then they'd do their survey. There was one that they did in 100% fog cover where they couldn't see anything. They pressured the wildlife biologists, one of whom testified to being threatened with being fired if they found too many murrelets Um, they cited in this, in this, uh, lawsuit decision, the federal judge cited this company's he scolded them for their absolute disdain for the law he cited a party that they had in which they threw including john campbell our missing guest they threw darts at a dartboard of a marbled murrellette
0: now let, let's back up but you're saying that uh you're quoting or I'm, paraphrasing what was in the uh ninth circuit court decision
1: absolutely these things were cited in the decision not just argued in the case including the thing of the about the dartboard and the fraud et cetera. so what the court ruled was that their their studies were fraudulent and that this area is so sensitive that any logging in this old-growth complex of headwaters, um, this larger one, the one that they tried to preserve in the bill, any, um, any logging in this area would constitute a take, would constitute a killing of an endangered species, of the marbled murrelet. And what, it was a very significant ruling because it ruled that on private land, um, the destruction of the habitat of an endangered species does constitute a killing of that species and is therefore illegal. So this, this uh, court ruling from the federal court shut down all logging in old growth areas. That's what it should be. It's intent. Instead, Maxam went to the state where they knew they had more control, and they're blitzing in here with this exemption to go for the heart of the old growth in a spike cut, which is just amazing. I need to say one more thing about the exemption, though. The the exemption that they've that they've applied for and received to cut in Headwaters Grove. This is an exemption on 6,000 acres. But when there was a bill in Congress that I just referred to to try to save Headwaters, it wasn't just the 6,000 acres. It was a 44,000 acre complex that consists of the five remaining. There's only five. The five remaining old growth growth plus the connecting lands which were to be restored was the nature of the bill. So Owl Creek is one of these five old growth groves, and Headwaters is another one. Within, In addition to the 6,000 acre exemption, Maxim also has recently received a 179,000 acre exemption and that covers virtually the rest of their timberland. And so they have the same exemption to cut quote-unquote dead and dying trees on virtually the whole rest of their timberland. And this happened with no public notice. It was in place a month before anybody even found out of it, out about it from our side. And they've been operating under this exemption right now. They're doing this right now. They're in there. They're taking out. People who have been monitoring them have discovered perfectly healthy stumps taken out under the pretext that they were dead or dying. They've discovered things taken out in in stream zones. So even the minor regulations that modify an exemption cut have been Launted as usual by Maxam, but even if they shut down the cutting on the six thousand acres, they are still exemption cutting old growth, quote unquote salvage logging of old growth throughout their timberlands throughout the forty-four thousand acre. Judy,
0: context. Judy, we're, we have about two and a half minutes left, and before we conclude, I want to shift topics with you and get a status report on the litigation that you have going against the FBI.
1: Um. Okay, well, we're still in what's called the discovery phase.
0: That's where you ask questions of them at depositions, and they have to provide written answers to to written questions.
1: And and also face-to-face. You know, we also do it face-to-face, and it has the weight of court testimony. It's all written down by a court reporter. And we've been discovering quite a lot of amazing things in the course of this. Um, What's most recently happened in this case, is that Richard Held, the man in charge of the FBI, who is a longtime co-intel pro-operative under J. Edgar Hoover, engaging in J. Edgar Hoover-type political sabotage campaigns, he actually filed a motion to protect himself from our questioning, saying that we shouldn't be allowed to protect himself. And he lost, and we won, and so we are now going to get to question Richard Held under oath. When do you plan
0: to be able to do that? I'm sorry, what? When do you expect to be able to do that?
1: We'll be within a few months. So that's, that's the most recent thing. The other thing that happened in the same court hearing, which is very recent, is that um, the FBI, in the course of this discovery that we've been having in these interviews, they came up with an excuse where they claimed that they had a tip on the day that I was bombed that the heavy hitters from up north and Earth First were going to be transporting a bomb. And we claim from other things in the files and from other testimony, we claimed that this is a false tip, that the FBI made it up after the fact to justify the false arrest. And um, so we, we, went, we demanded that they tell us the name of the informant so that we can question them to find out whether it's a false tip. And they very rarely will allow that to happen. It's called piercing the informant privilege. But we won that ruling. Also, the judge said it's not enough that you suspect that it's a false informant that this is a fake tip you have to have substantial evidence and she ruled that we did have substantial evidence so they are also being forced to reveal the name of this informant
0: and when do you expect to learn that
1: uh again everything it's within a couple months Uh, i'd like to say one more thing about headwaters if i can yeah sure um i want to say that headwaters forest is a planetary treasure and and this is just the fact that he's trying to cut this is an absolute travesty that we're not just talking about scenery here Charles Hurwitz is ripping out the lungs of the planet, and these trees are, are in an ancient wilderness. The idea of it going down just to satiate the greed of this billionaire is, is really a travesty. Uh, We certainly need marbled murlets more than we need corporate raiders in this land, and Hurwitz should be given no compensation at all. He should be forced to give up this land. Debt for nature would be a good deal for this man. He belongs in jail. Hurwitz does not deserve compensation. He owes restitution. He owes restitution to the community that he's destroyed the economic base. He owes restitution to the taxpayers that he forced to bail him out of his junk-bond adventures, and he owes restitution to the earth. And that's why we're going to be up
0: there. Judy, I want to thank you for joining us and ask you the last question I've asked you before here uh, on this program. And that is, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately that you can recommend to our listeners?
1: Well, I have to say that for the last week and a half, I haven't read anything because I've been working so hard on this mobilization. But the book that I put down before I stopped having time to read uh, when we started doing this was... um, that it was—it's called J. Edgar Hoover. It's by Kurt Gentry, uh, and uh, you know I'm doing this to study for the FBI case, but it's turned out to be an extremely interesting book. That I thought I knew everything there was to know about the way these people operate and how deliberate their their actions are but this book has been very it's easy it's easy reading it's interesting and it's it's quite informative
0: and that's j edgar hoover by kurt gentry yes judy berry uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, here on radio curious
1: thanks for having me sorry that wimpo john campbell wouldn't come on
0: all right Right after we recorded this program and while I was preparing it for broadcast, Judy Berry called me back to tell me that she had learned that this morning, March 27th, the logging had already begun at Headwaters Forest. Judy Berry was one of the leading environmental advocates in Northern California until her death in March of 1997. The book that she recommended is J. Edgar Hoover by Kurt Gentry. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California 95482. The phone is 707 621 5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.